We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 7th, 2017, the Wedding Cake Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John and Emily and I are all together. We're all together in the Mix One Studios in Boston, Massachusetts. We taped our conundrum show last night, which will air later this month, and we are now lovely and together. Hello, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, hello. Hello, John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation. I, hi, David. I'm loving this studio we're in. It's like we should all be recording some kind of a record. Would you like to? Is you it like hexagonal? Yeah. It's a very nicely, pleasingly shaped That's room. We, we could call our album, it could be called The Hexagon. It could be called Inside the Hexagon. Yeah, that's right. Um, that could be our freeform jazz album, Inside the Hexagon. All right. <laughs> okay. Look for that. <laughs> yeah. Look for that on Record OK basis. Records. Yeah. On yeah. On just on just OK Records. <laughs> on just OK Records. Maybe not OK <laughs> yeah. Records. Um. It'll be with you in vinyl very soon. All right. What an incredible week 
it is exhausting. It's very hard to keep track of the craziness. The Trump administration planning to create a private spy agency, the fires consuming Los Angeles, Russia banned from the Olympics, Michael Flynn indicted, my goodness, presidential lawyers arguing he cannot have committed obstruction of justice because the president cannot commit obstruction of justice, the tax cuts struggling because of an insane $250 billion drafting error. Dustin Hoffman versus John Oliver. It never ends. It Wait, never I didn't ends. even know about like three of the things you just <laughs> mentioned. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. Tell well, me more. That's, we're not going. That's okay because we don't have to talk about it. We will not be talking about any of those things. Instead, on this week's Gabfest, we had to limit ourselves to a mere three sweet issues. First of all, Al Franken resigning. John Conyers resigned, and yet Roy Moore giddy-ups along toward victory despite incredibly disgusting allegations against him. Why Why is Moore surviving and these other guys going? Why is politics different? We'll talk about that. And will Moore win? Yes, he will. Then... Not clear. Not clear. Then the wedding cake case Emily has been excited about for months, we've all been waiting for, finally reaches the Supreme Court. We'll talk about that. Masterpiece cake shop case. And then President Trump has declared that the U.S. will recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and eventually move our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. How disruptive is that for the Mideast peace process? How dangerous is it? And does it really matter? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Another week, another raft of men going down for their terrible sexual harassment behavior. James Levine, the famous conductor, has been credibly accused of all kinds of misdeeds. Dustin Hoffman, the actor, was whacked by John Oliver in a a very public way for some misbehavior of his. Uh, And in politics, we are beginning to see it taking a toll on some men. John Conyers, the long-serving, in fact, is the longest-serving, is he the longest-serving member of the House? A Democrat resigned from the House of Representatives amid, amid tons of credible allegations of sexual harassment and misbehavior, as well as secret payoffs to victims. He denies them, we should say. Al Franken resigning after a sixth accusation of somebody uh, claiming unwanted behavior, in this case, a forcible kissing that he did, he, uh, she did not want, and 11 Democratic women in the Senate called for him to step down, and Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democratic leader, also called on him to step down. But on the Republican side, not as much. Uh, Congressman Blake Farenthold appears to be brazening through news that he paid off a victim staffer who he he uh, mistreated. And in Alabama, Roy Moore. Roy Moore appears uh, headed to victory over Doug Jones in the Alabama special Senate election, despite multiple credible, unrefuted allegations of sexual assault, predatory behavior, and all that creepiness toward teenage girls. Trump firmly and formally endorsed Moore this week. The RNC is funding him again. Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, has backed off all of his earlier talk from a few weeks ago about barring Moore from serving if elected. So, John... First of all, um, is Moore going to win? Oh, we have no idea. I mean, you. Why you, did I ask you? Well, that? no, you're the you. no, no, because the polls, the yeah, place. there are a couple of things. The po- polls are uh, tough to do in a state that doesn't have, you know, it's not Iowa or New Hampshire that has a, a lot of attention. So you have to be careful in in state polling. A 
B, you have a you can imagine, and I don't know whether there's any evidence of this, but you can imagine some um, two things. One, people who won't admit to voting for Roy Moore when a pollster calls them because of all the publicity. And then two, you can imagine people not participating in the poll at all who are more supporters. And so it could be very difficult. There could be a lot of noise and very difficult to get a, a, a judgment. And isn't turnout going to be yeah. hugely important? And we and, don't know what that is going to be. And we ha- one thing we have seen overwhelmingly in polls is a rush to defend Moore, a feeling that the allegations among Moore's base are um, the product of a media and establishment conspiracy, that the narrative that this um, passage has fallen into existing tracks. And the existing track is the establishment in Washington wants to stop people who want to protect our values. Now that this has been framed in that way, it's a turnout mechanism for those his most ardent supporters who he wants to turn out. What is the similar existing narrative for Democratic base voters that this can inflame? There isn't one exactly. There is a new one, which is we shouldn't elect people who have been credibly accused of uh, sexual I, misconduct. S- well, uh, Rape. sexual assault in the case of to, of, of a fourteen year old, um, and then sexual misconduct, and then just general creepiness um, on um, going after young girls. You know that some people would say, well, that's enough to get people to turn out, but I don't. Um, I'm not sure that it is. And I wonder, at the end of this, when it's all over, the fact that the president has endorsed him, I wonder actually if that, for Democrats, who do have this kind of strong aversion to the president, if that actually doesn't help some Democrats kind of turn out more now that this is a way to to, to punch the president in the nose, uh, although I don't know, you know how much of an effect that actually has on the race, I don't know. Do we? Do you guys think that this story would be playing out differently if it had broken in the Alabama press instead of the Washington Post? And obviously I say that mm. not as a knock on the Post. Like the Post did amazing reporting to go find this and like good for them. But if this had been a local story, would it have been as easy to caricature as like this, you know, manipulation by Washington? That's a very good question. Yeah, I think you're. A great... that's a great question. One of the reasons why it was unlikely is that a tremendous amount of the Alabama press is controlled by conservative media owners who have really disgracefully handled the allegations so far. And so there is some, there's some media in Alabama, which is covering it. And some, some of the stories have broken in the Alabama, the the follow-up stories were broken in the Alabama press, but a lot of Alabama media, especially television and some of the big papers are barely giving any credence to the basically clearly true allegations. And so, so I think it would just, it would be, and that's one of the reasons why local, the sort of independence and strength of local media is so important is because for just this reason. Yeah. I mean, I also have been surprised, you know, the women who've come forward, some of them are Trump supporters. They are, you know, white Alabama women who, you know, may or may not be evangelicals themselves, but seem very clear to, clearly to be speaking from like, their Alabama values. In some cases, their boyfriends or other men in their lives have come forward and said, I believe her. She told me this a long time ago. And yet still, this seems to be framed by a lot of Roy Moore supporters as a pack of lies. And it just makes me wonder if there's any way to overcome what you were saying, John, about, you know, once this is framed as an attack on our team. Mm -hmm. And our values. I mean, in other words, it attaches to the 
original reason they supported more over Luther Strange in the Republican primary. Um, and yet the R values part, like, what values? Isn't, what isn't? Well, they think that Moore is a champion for their religious values. And, and this is obviously why critics of the Moore supporters and critics of the Republican Party that's supporting it and critics, critics of the, the Post did an interesting poll of, in terms of even white evangelicals who support Moore versus other Protestants. And the evangelicals support him overwhelmingly. And so the obvious uh, critique, even from some evangelicals, is, wait a minute. <laughs> um, He's a child predator, an right. accused child predator. Right. And, and you've got your priorities out of line. And nevertheless, the poll shows what it shows so that there is some other piece of their values and identity that they attach so strongly to him that they want to protect it by electing him. Um, it is a – I mean you could argue this is probably the most extreme test of – tribalism behavior that we've we've seen. I mean, the Democrats are reacting in a different way to their to threats on their tribe by forcing out Conyers, forcing out Franken and the Republicans right now, because this isn't the only case. Paul Ryan, you know, Blake uh, Farenthold, the um, Republican congressman, paid out an $84,000 settlement for somebody he harassed. And I believe only one Republican member of the House, Comstock, has called for his resignation. Yeah. And so... And that's with taxpayer money, by the way. I remember there was an entire wave election based on the misuse of uh, taxpayer money at the at the uh, House post office. This is for something much worse. And the Politico had a story this week about the woman who was sexually uh, assaulted by Farenthold and whose career basically ended because of this experience. And in the face of that, that's not Alabama. That's public, national. In the face of that, there has been uh, no effort from the leadership to to speak out in the in the same way. So um, this is a this seems to me a rather defining moment, you know, not just about what's happening in Alabama, but more broadly for both parties. So what does that mean? I mean, is there an argument and I'm like uh, wincing as I make it that this is very rational. Note behavior. Emily wincing. Note Emily wincing. This is very rational behavior on the part of Republican voters. They are backing candidates who are going to vote in the ways they support when they get to Washington, and they are just yeah. separating personal behavior in the as, way that, like you know, some liberals have said for years, like don't worry about the affair. Isn't it so? I mean, some liberals. Right? All of Lots us. for Bill Clinton. <laughs> I mean, um, not about child accusations of child predation. No, we that's should right. Say. But, well, well no. a twenty-one-year-old intern is not child predation, but it's really fucking Gross. creepy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there were, you know, and there were rape allegations. I mean, that that were against so, Bill Clinton against by Bill, Juanita Broderick. Yeah. So it's but, not a perfect equivalency, but certainly putting things aside that in another context you would be outraged about for the purposes of your political views is. Is what you're talking about. Right. I mean, I do think we all should be asking as we sort of like as I mean, I deplore this. Let me just be clear. But I do think we should all be asking ourselves if you were faced with a choice between a candidate who you abhorred every single thing he would do once he got to Congress versus someone with Roy Moore's record, what would you do? I I would not vote for I would not vote for Roy Moore if Roy Moore were the greatest Democratic politician who you know with the best I ever i wouldn't vote for doug jones i wouldn't vote for the doug jones or whoever the conservative yeah. doug jones equivalent is but no way that's i wouldn't that's, do it follow I that line that of reasoning because uh, i have a I, I wonder why you say that <laughs> because i believe that people 
I believe there there's room for immoral behavior and that people are you know people are capable of making occasional bad moral decisions and that that you shouldn't judge them entirely but when is someone is committing acts of sexual assault against children I don't there's no I can't see any universe in which I would justify having that person represent more me than in a Congress, personal no choice. There seems to be a national reason, and this seems to me should be what compels people to speak out and why people should be compelled to speak out, is that if we are in a national moment where everybody is learning what the new standard is for listening to accusers and for what norms should be in place that don't allow the powerful or those who are in a tribe to be protected by the tribe, because you definitely don't want a situation in which a powerful person gets to behave any way they want and knows that because they're a member of a specific tribe, that tribe will rally around them no matter how bad the accusation. We, we have decided as a culture in this moment that we've got to change that. But one of the elements of changing that is not just punishing people, but also communicating loud and proud to the rest of the world where we are now of the view that accusers should be listened to. They must be communicated to that you will be listened to and that if the the message is actually no if the tribe's going to rally you're not going to be listened to that is a public policy message that you are sending by not speaking up right and this is such an extreme case i mean these are women coming forward with credible stories some of them with corroborating evidence the initial accusation about this 14 year old sitting outside of like her mother's custody hearing in a divorce dispute more preyed on her when she was really vulnerable it is so upsetting to think of anyone you care about being put into the position she was put into it's just it was criminal behavior the um i I have two questions about this one is uh what let's assume more is elected and ends up serving um, what happens when he comes to the Senate? Like, yeah. when, if he if he's your colleague, he's right. your he's your new colleague. He's been you know he's he's in like a new New York Times staffer, a new CBS uh, person's been hired, uh, new guest on the Gabfest. Like, what what do you do? Well, do you shit? You know, we come. You know, nice yeah. to meet you, Senator Moore. I look forward to working closely together. I look forward to finding some common ground. I mean, the argument of somebody who would who would say though that would be. The voters of Alabama have spoken. And well, and Mitch McConnell has basically made clear that has that's... said that. Now, he said, we'll, we'll let the voters of Alabama speak, and then we'll see what we'll do when we take it to the Senate, which gets into the Ethics Committee. And then the question at the Ethics Committee is, do you can you judge somebody for behavior before they got to the Senate? When With the Vitter case of Senator Vitter, who uh, saw prostitutes, they decided that um, this had happened before he was in the Senate, and therefore the Senate had no standing to make that claim or to eject him on those grounds. What are they going to decide in this case? Because this is all behavior that happened before. Somebody made the case to me, well, the behavior happened before, but if we believe the behavior is credibly been outlined by the accusers, then he's lying about it in the present, and that's reason enough to eject him. I don't know. That's a, that seems like a bank shot. But um, one thing that I would note is that in the latest Quinnipiac poll, um, there was a question asked, do you believe that a person who has been um, accused by multiple people of sexual harassment and sexual assault, do you think that elected official – should resign or not. 66% of adults said that they should. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters in the Roy Moore case and in the Franken case, but it also matters in the presidential case because the argument from the White House is the voters knew about this. They voted and and elected President Trump anyway, so that's the end of the conversation. But clearly, 66% of the people don't think it's the end of the conversation. So what norms we decide are being figured out in the Franken and Moore case don't just stop working 
in the Senate, right? Because they're now – this is a cultural, national, Hollywood, media, corporate suites. This is a national setting of norms. Everything we're talking about here should have some answer at the presidential level because those issues are still unresolved. Can we also just talk about the – division, which in politics is partisan, between men who just deny all these accusations and men who apologize, express regret, even if they don't, you know, both Conyers and Franken have disputed some of the details, I believe, of some of the allegations. But in Franken's case, he has said, like, I'm sorry, I am embarrassed, etc. I mean, it just seems like how could you and maybe this is wrong because they're appealing to different voting bases who have different reactions but it just seems like the safest course of action is still to completely deny everything that's the very thin reed that Moore's candidacy and president trump's continued uh holding of office or at least like continued claim that he didn't do anything wrong it's all hanging on that thread and it just seems that is also really troubling for the developing of norms that you just refuse to have any reckoning with um, Clarence Thomas also. Yes. And Clarence Thomas, another successful denier. Although we, uh, the, the Thomas case is a little bit different because were there multiple? I can't remember. Were there multiple? In, in yes. I've case? gotten like really interested in this history. So when Anita Hill came forward, she was the only one who testified yes. about sexual harassment by Clarence Thomas. And that story, which is like a fundamental origin story of sexual harassment, really right. like determined it was we'd only sexual harassment was only made against the law by the Supreme Court in 1986. So 1991, here's Anita Hill. It's like a huge public moment. She comes forward as the only person. We know that story as yeah. Anita Hill. There were three other women. I, now, I all, not all of yeah. them said they were directly sexually harassed, but one or really two of them did have that those kinds yeah, of allegations. I, and then later, other people came forward. So, in fact, I, there was this pattern of, and, of allegations. And also, it should be noted that the barrier to coming forward back then in 91 was surely a heck of a lot higher. I mean, it's for the point you make, which is that it only gets um, right. and against the law were... in 1986. So the number of people coming forward in 1991 is, is, has to be weighted for uh, for history. That's and, right. And the three women who wanted to testify in 91 and were never called were black women, too. That's important to note. All right. Last question on this. So Conyers is gone essentially forced out franken will be out does the standard setting here by democrats will it uh emily have any larger implication or does this kind of deny strategy that so many on the right have been using uh mean that the fact that, that the democrats have been have effectively uh, purged their their wrongdoers except for bill clinton they've effectively purged their wrongdoers does that does that not have a I mean, man, I hope so. What do you think? I think that it is going to be harder for men not to think really hard about their own records with this regard before they run for public office, before they do anything that's going to subject them to public scrutiny. And I hope so. I mean, that seems to me to be the most important potential gain here is a sense that there are real consequences that could both prevent people, make it really clear to them that there is personal risk here. And also that we won't have people in office who have treated women in this right. way. Because you know what? And maybe Al Franken is an, ex- an exception to this. I don't know. But it seems to me that most of the time when you have men accused of this behavior, they are not the people who are out there, you know, rallying for equal pay and fighting against gender discrimination. They are jerks. You know, one sh- po- one, just one point on this, which is that 
had these allegations against um, Moore come out before the primary, Strange would have won that going away. Like the the only reason why this is not destroying Moore now is because it's become partisan. But had it been intrapartisan, then he would have been gone. And so, therefore, had it like that that person who is thinking about running for office, knowing he has to face a primary challenge, will probably be more scared. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind in ac- across all kinds of different th- things. Um, these norms as they're shifting, when I wonder what the actual what the rest of the country really thinks or do they just think this is just another kind of moment of fracas and and we'll move on. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The Supreme Court this week took on a case that people have been anticipating for months, maybe even for years. It is the the wedding cake case, the case involving Charlie Craig and David Mullins, who asked Jack Phillips of the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado to make a wedding cake for them. Phillips objected, saying that for religious beliefs, he chose, did not want to do it. They complained to a Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Colorado Civil Rights Commission said he should make it. He No, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission said that so Colorado has a state law protecting against discrimination on the basis of race and gender and national origin, religion and also sexual orientation. So the Colorado Commission is charged with enforcing this law. Colorado has decided that this is a right against discrimination that it wants to guarantee. And the commission said that if Phillips was going to refuse to bake wedding cakes for gay couples for their weddings, then he needed to not bake wedding cakes for other couples. And in fact, there's a better way to put it, which is to say that um, he had to treat everybody equally who was coming in and asking for a wedding cake. And so Phillips um, was not ordered to bake anyone a cake. He was told that if he wanted to continue to sell wedding cakes, he had to be open to all customers asking for wedding cakes. In other words, this was a case about treating all customers who walk in his door equally. His shop is open for public business. It's what we call a public accommodation. And so the question in this case is whether Colorado has properly enforced its civil rights law or whether Phillips' right to freedom of religion has priority over Colorado's law and gives him um, a chance to essentially override that law, whether the state properly enforced its civil rights law and um, whether his religious rights were therefore overly burdened. He says he lost 40 percent of his revenue. So Emily, that's the the great setup. So tell us a bit about what was at stake or how it was uh, laid out in front of the Supreme Court? What were the the, the main positions taken? What, where, where was it argued? Phillips's counsel comes from the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a conservative group that has a broad agenda for rolling back protections for gay people and also abortion rights. It's actually an organization that has a bigger budget than the ACLU, even though many people have not heard of it. And it's had a lot of success getting its cases to the Supreme Court. It has another case, at least one, I think two coming this term. Okay, so this case 
in order to win, it needs to be a case about artistic expression. The idea that this cake baker was being forced, as you would say, to um, convey a message through his cake that he didn't want to convey that was a violation of his religious principles. So, so First Amendment, not equal protection or not. I mean, not a religious thing, a First Amendment free speech thing. Exactly. Which seems weird, right? We would think this would be a free exercise case. Yeah, but here's why it's not. So. Back in 1990, I think, it's an old case. There's this case called Employment Division versus Smith. There's a Justice Scalia, five to four majority. And the ruling in that case is that if the state passes a generally applicable law and is applying it neutrally, then you don't get to have like a little special religious exemption to that law. That's the case about um, a Native American tribe trying to use peyote in its rituals, even though peyote was illegal. So... You have that ruling from the Supreme Court, and then you have, okay, so states pass generally applicable laws like the civil rights statute. And even if you say you have religious objections, like, essentially too bad. I should also add Colorado in its civil rights statute has a carve out for places of worship. So if you're a church, you don't have to uh, – and you have an objection to – Whatever type of wedding, you don't have to let a couple use your services. But this bake shop is not in any way a religious organization or business. It's just like a straight-up regular store. After Employment Division versus Smith, Congress tried to pass a law called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that essentially would make it easier for religious organizations to challenge the application of generally applicable state laws. But the Supreme Court ruled that as applied to the states, that federal law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, was unconstitutional. So then a bunch of states passed their own little baby, they're called RIFRAs, where they said, in our state, we're going to give religious groups more power. We're going to make the government have to show that they're not overburdening religious rights. But Colorado doesn't have a state Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Instead, it has this civil rights law. And Mike Pence famously tried to pass a RIFRA. In Indiana. In Indiana. Yes. Uh, but why would a RIFRA affect an individual who is not a religious organization? It depends how you write the RIFRA, right? Like you can have a freedom, religious freedom law in which you could say if you assert a religious right and you're saying the law shouldn't apply to you, the state should have to really prove that, you know, it doesn't burden your religious. Like, you could make it as broad so or narrow as I'm really want, confused about something, though. Oh, so no. if it's if it's a First Amendment, uh, if it's a f- expression that he's artistic, he does not want his artistic expression constrained. He wishes to yeah. make cakes. How is the religious question applicable at all? It's not. But but it's somehow well, no. it is at all. But yeah. what, I mean, what, if he's like, I don't want to make. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to make um, wedding cakes for gay people because I don't like to represent two men. Not because I not because I object to marriage equality, but because I just don't like any pictures, right. any artistic expression that shows two men is just aesthetically objectionable to me. Right? Is that the same objection as I don't want to make this cake because I believe that marriage equality is wrong? Uh, I mean, I don't not. Sure, but it's not the facts we have here, right? So what Jack Phillips, this baker, says is he actually says he doesn't have a problem with gay people, gay identity. He just doesn't support gay wedding. So he's trying to make it about the ritual, the religiously inflected ritual as opposed for him, as opposed to the gay couple standing in front of him. And that was one of the big points of tension at the Supreme Court this week was, is this about the identity of the people who come into the store, which 
would make presumably Justice right. Kennedy, the swing vote, very nervous because that would really interfere with the idea you have this constitutional right. You're essentially um, turning that right into something that doesn't you know, doesn't give people full citizenship. But what Phillips is saying is, like, I, as a Christian, don't think that gay weddings are permissible. And so I don't want any part in this. And I don't want to have to make a cake that, in my view, is, like, supporting and condoning this wedding. Right. So he'll make a birthday cake for them. So isn't it basically he's saying, don't force me to say something I don't agree with. And for so sure, by producing because of cake, my religious beliefs. Yeah. So that's but where David's, the religion This is why David, in, what David in. says is interesting. So what if I came in and forced you to say something that you didn't believe in some other context? And you didn't have a religious ex- reason for it. You just had a moral, ethical, or some other kind of reason. Right. So this comes up all the time of like, what if you don't, the KKK comes in and wants you to make a like... KKK cake. Well, the KKK is not a protected class. That's how we get around that. We have this idea in anti-discrimination law that there are certain groups based on their immutable characteristics, race, gender, sexual orientation, national origin. And then we also include religion, even though that's really not an immutable characteristic. And we say, if you're discriminating against someone because of those things, then that's not okay. And that's different from... um, saying you don't want to make a cake. But what, about, but what if it's a person who's like, happy birthday, Adolf Hitler? An right. individual who wants a happy... Not the KKK who doesn't want it. It's Just an individual who wants a happy birthday, Adolf Hitler cake. This is why this case is so interesting. It's really hard to articulate, like, what the problem... Why that would you would that would be okay or not. Um, I... Well, because it's not a, their identity. It's not you're making not making a claim about something that's immutable. Right. So right, right. Uh, your opinion about about Hitler is up for grabs. It's not something that's etched into your being by the creator or whatever. I mean, right. you know, the way race and sexual identity would be. Right, um, right. Depending, obviously, on what your view is. But, right, right. Um, I, sh- I mean, the other thing about this case is so it's a very nuanced position that the baker is taking. He's actually saying that this gay couple is welcome to buy anything on the shelves of the store. He just doesn't want to make a custom-made cake for them. And so... Then that led into a whole discussion about lots of other kinds of services for weddings and whether if you are a makeup artist or a florist or a photographer or a chef, you can really go on and Well, because those have come up, haven't they? Some of them have, yes. And there was a strange moment where the lawyer for the baker said that chefs were not expressing a kind of First Amendment-protected creative expression, but bakers were. That seemed like really splitting hairs in this way that is hard well, to quite. I don't know that that's right. I mean, the, the, a wedding cake has it has a ceremonial, it has a kind of altarpiece quality that the food at a wedding doesn't necessarily. I mean, I guess, but it, you. It's ritualistic. A wedding cake is ritualistic in a way. Like, I don't think you could say that every dessert would be protected. Just the cake. But the cake is the cake is a special object. I mean, that's maybe. why people spend thousands of dollars and get them decorated and go to Massachusetts. And that's why people shop. say, right, it takes the cake. They don't say it, t- it, it takes, takes the stew. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> or, serve stew at a wedding. That's the a creme, weird thing to serve. It, it takes the, the creme brulee. It takes the salmon. It takes the or, salmon. you know, it takes so the souffle. here's the, what I was thinking as I was reading the transcript. There's a lot. So both sides are trying to draw distinctions about how certain things you do for a wedding or a, a ritual are 
protected expression have this more hallowed place and other things aren't. And it made me sad, the whole thing. It was like, you know, so Justice Kagan brings up makeup artists and the lawyer for the baker is like, nope, they're not protected. I just felt like there are all these artisans and businesses who are have a legitimate claim to feel like they're contributing to weddings in a way that is creative and expressive. And people usually take a lot of joy in that. And I didn't like the notion that because of the posture of this case, they were some of them being sort of scorned as well, like it, lesser. I, it just but doesn't that isn't that forced on them by the fact that they made this about the First Amendment and not about religious? Uh, yes, I mean they I mean, have no they they have they can't be in there on free exercise grounds like because of Employment Division versus Smith and the fact that Colorado doesn't have its own Religious Freedom Restoration Act. They right. don't have this is the ground they have to stand on. But it well, created this weird. Well, like, but isn't that the fact that it creates that weird thing and you're off into this other weird territory where you're essentially not talking about the thing, you're talking about right. this other thing. Right. Shouldn't that be a situation where there's got to be some legal phrase for this, which is like, if we're spending so much time in Cleveland and we meant to be going to Colorado, shouldn't that tell us something? Not necessarily about the underlying... I mean, it's, it's, you can still uh, interrogate this question, but don't do it in this way because you, it's backwards. I actually think... So I, I actually think it's a, there's a third layer of this, which is it, it... It is So it's being argued on this First Amendment expressive grounds you're saying actually no it's really this is a religious fight which where we've transferred displaced onto the free expression part i would actually argue it's in fact the fight is something totally different which is that it's really about how much time do we as a society allot to people to adapt to social change and it's and yeah and how much time do people get to adjust to it and it's clear like if this had been these people have been let alone you know the masterpiece cake shop would be known as the cake shop you don't go to if you want a cake whatever if you're a gay couple but be plenty of other people are providing it you know in time this guy's bit would go out of business whatever people aren't being blocked this is not a big issue people are not being blocked for marriage it's just not a there there isn't an epidemic of people suffering uh gay couples suffering because they're not being able to get wedding services it's just not happening they are able to get married they're able to get the services they want gay weddings are happening everywhere people want to have it and what has happened is that th- this has been allowed Liberals have stupidly allowed this to become an issue whereby the religious right conservatives are going to be able to put another marker down to be able to carve out another area potentially where religious liberty is going to intrude on people. And they didn't even need to have this fight. They just need to give people time to adjust and not have and not allow the legal fight to occur. Let's go back for a moment to the civil rights era in which one of the big forms of activism was sit-ins at lunchroom counters of stores. And the courts ruled that those were places of public accommodation that if you were a business open to the public you had to serve everyone. And in fact there is a Supreme Court case with the amazing name of um Newman versus Piggy Park in which Piggy Park was Maurice a, uh yeah, that's the South Carolina barbecue chain. Yeah, became, yeah, exactly. And the and yeah. the owner of that chain claimed that he was not going to serve black people, despite the Civil Rights Act, because he didn't believe in any kind of interracial mixing. He didn't want to be part of any form of integration. And the courts rejected that claim, sort of out of hand, honestly. And if we if that claim had been allowed to go forward at that time, how does that change our history? And is this situation really a different one? And do we want to live in a world where a business open to the public can refuse service? Of course not. Of course we don't. Of course we don't. But the fact is that despite 
the victory in that case for for the the correct victories for civil rights activists in that case, there remained in the South businesses that effectively barred or provided poor service to African-Americans to this day, including that that chain through the 90s was notorious that black people didn't, you know, were not really welcome at that barbecue chain in the South. And so the fact that there was a legal victory did not actually have a huge impact in that case around the, the actual practices. And what I'm saying is there's been an enormous shift in how people treat gay people in this country and how people treat marriage equality. Like an enormous, an epically quick shift. And these people, Masterpiece Cake Shop people have not caught up and they're still behind and they're wrong. But I don't know that having the legal fight speeds up that process or makes anyone's life better, even, you know, no matter what outcome it is. It feels to me like it just heightens a cultural tension that already exists. Well, for sure it's heightening the cultural tension. But I think that one, so I didn't, that's an interesting history about Piggy Park and the idea of de facto barring of the doors to African-Americans in the South and certain businesses, which I also don't know anything about. But Colorado has tried to pass a law that makes that illegal. It's trying to extend the protections against discrimination to gay couples in exactly this context. So do we want to tell states that they're not allowed to do that, that essentially they can have civil rights laws that protect people against race discrimination and religion and gender, but not protect gay people? Really? No, of course not. No, no. He's talking about the tactics, basically. Yeah, of course not. The The laws are right. And it's just like it wasn't and the the masterpiece cake shop is totally wrong. They're wrong on the facts. It's a it's a it's a vile prejudice, and I've, we all know that because if you imagine that a black uh, you know an interracial couple came in there and was like, "I refuse to make a cake for an interracial couple," we would all know that that was wrong, and they wouldn't win that case. But, but if the law just, is correct, then no one's allowed to enforce it. Like no, we just have this state law in no, the books, and then this saying, gay couple that feels refused service is supposed to just like go off into the night. He's offering the proposition that you don't after. A cultural change that was created by making same-sex marriage legal across the country, that cultural changes happen at a slower pace. And then when you force it like this, you cause a backlash, essentially. Right. I understand the argument. I just wonder, in a state that is trying to protect gay couples and has this civil rights law, which it sounds like, David, you support, then you're essentially saying this is an empty right. Sorry. Like, you were refused well, service. Right. I'm saying that it's... It, that, that, the so fact is the... that 98% of businesses or 99.9% of businesses are going to comply with the law and are going to – and, the, the, Maybe, the, and although... the act of enforcement of it in this case, it just creates something for people to be victimized about. It creates cultural tension. It creates a backlash. And therefore, it's not that they shouldn't win. Of course they should win. So, But they shouldn't but, have brought the but case? They, but the case is one that will be – you know, it's a pyrrhic victory because it doesn't actually advance – what people want, which is just accommodation and tolerance, and, and perhaps and, restraint, and, and restraint, and giving people, a, and yeah. So the remedy in this case, as I think we started out talking about, was for Jack Phillips to stop baking wedding cakes if he wasn't going to make them available to everyone. Isn't that like what we expect of people who want right. to exercise their right to civil disobedience, that they pay some kind of penalty? Like, OK, I, no one's going to force you to make this cake, convey this message, yeah. use your artistic expression this way you don't believe. It just means that you have to give up some of your business. Philip says that he's lost 40 percent right. of his revenue 
by giving up. Is, isn't that a fair trade? Like, Right. So then their argument would be, but this is my religious belief. Why is the country I'm living in making me making it so onerous for me to practice my re- religious belief? Right. And then the answer is because we think it's more important to protect it. We in uh, Colorado right. decided it's more important to protect gay people right. against discrimination. And there so, is a class. Sure. You have to choose. But right. And so what the message. So the, I guess going back to whether David's point is right or not. So that idea is we think it's more important for a group. There are a group of people in the country who think. Turns out every time this get this question gets asked, somebody always thinks something's more important than the religion that we practice. And, and I'm not saying that that's right. no, true I think or not, that's but true. I think that's the cultural moment we're in here is where people think that's happening across the board in all these different ways. And since this is a fundamental part of their life, yeah. I guess another question I have about this is if the problem is conveying a message, why can't Jack Phelps put up a sign in the store that says Colorado law requires me to provide equal services to all customers? I want to note that I don't believe that, you know, gay people should get married. That goes against my Christian beliefs so that it's he's making it very clear that his cakes don't, in fact, convey this message he doesn't believe in. But then wouldn't that be considered a chilling sign that would basically make it put an undue burden on gay couples that came I mean, in yeah what would you would you no, he's what, allowed to do that what, oh, would, he you, is? would you well would yeah. you welcome it do you think it would be good to live in a world where it says you know uh i'm required uh, all yeah. businesses are required to serve african-americans a I, lot of there are i don't like to serve african-americans I mean, I, I, of course, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think what I just proposed is a okay. good idea either. <laughs> but is it I'm an just accommodation? saying that if this is about mm. a conveying a message, that it mm. seems like there's a clear way to both be open to businesses and also convey your message. Justice Kennedy, who, you know, stands at the center of all this because he's both like the biggest proponent of the First Amendment and yeah. also a champion of gay rights. He was troubled, it seemed, at oral argument by the idea that you could put up a sign saying, um, I don't bake wedding cakes for gay people in your window. But then the lawyer said, well, it would just say custom-made wedding cakes, and, like, maybe that would oh. be okay. And he and Kennedy said, well, isn't that going to be offensive to the gay community in some way? Um, the thing anyway. is, doesn't Ken- what I don't understand about Kennedy is if Kennedy believes that it's bigotry to not allow same-sex marriages, essentially, that inherent in, dis- in, in not allowing it, that that's a bigoted thing, then, like, doesn't he see through this First Amendment argument? If, if that's his view, then, like— it doesn't he see what's going on here and therefore wouldn't be swayed by the First Amendment? He's concerned about the same thing you guys are wrestling with. In Obergefell, which is his gay, you know, his constitutional right to same-sex marriage opinion, he said people are going to have honest and heartfelt disagreements about this. Like, essentially, we're going to – it's going to take some – he didn't say it's going to take some time, but that's yeah. essentially the tenor of that part of his opinion. And, and Chief Justice Roberts, who dissented in Obergefell, brought that up. He basically kept pitching, like kept reminding Kennedy of that principle from Obergefell, which is exactly what you're talking about. And essentially, what I think you both want, and I understand this, is a kind of time out. Like, OK, let's have a period of time. This is just going to like fall away by itself because in the end, people want to make money when they have businesses open. Um, and so why have this need to send? And, and there is one strong factual point on the side with Justice Alito kept hammering home, which is that when Colorado passed this anti-discrimination law, extending it to um, gay people, they did not recognize a right to same-sex weddings at that time. So Alito is basically saying, like, the state was sending a message at the time that we don't think that gay people should get married. How can they tell this cake baker that he has to accept it? 
Hey, Slate Plus members, we have an extra segment for you today, as ever. Our Slate Plus segment today is what should be a national park that is not a national park. If you would like to become a Slate Plus member and get extra segments like that, other goodies, go to slate.com slash gabfestplus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Donald Trump announced Wednesday that the United States was recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and would eventually move our embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, where it's been for many decades. In practice, of course, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It is where the seat of government is. But the U.S. and most nations of the world have declined to acknowledge that fact for 70 years for many reasons, the most important of which is that since Palestinians also claim Jerusalem as their capital, the world should not should not uh, acknowledge Israel's claim on it until the final status of the city is resolved, until there is, as many people hope, a two-state solution with, with each nation having its own capital. Trump's announcement delighted Israelis, especially those on the right and, and backers of Bibi Netanyahu, the longtime prime minister, and also delighted many American conservatives and many American uh, evangelicals who are keen supporters of Israel. Um, it has, on the other hand, been denounced by the Secretary General of the United States, the Pope, the President of France, all relevant Palestinian and Arab officials. So, John, politically, why would Trump make this move? And why does it serve? I mean, it is a campaign is, pledge. And Hamas has said it opens the gates of hell in addition to They other. are always opening the gates yeah, of hell right. there. Not exactly like Hamas is the um, – I just wanted to be a completist on the reactions. Um yeah, so there are um, – and this has been U.S. policy for a while. They just haven't done anything about it. The um, two big reasons would be um, uh, a lot of the president's supporter, evangelical supporters are uh, uh, support this move for religious reasons. Um, and then Sheldon Adelson, a, a backer of the president, a strong – uh, force in Republican politics wants this move taken. Um, a strong force because he has gazillions of dollars yeah. as a casino yeah, yeah. owner and gave like $20 million or some very large amount to the RNC last year. Right. Whatever you can, wherever the soft money is going these days. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So those are two uh, big political reasons. And I think that, you know, then I think a third reason is that the president has has kept pretty close attention, more arguably than any president uh, maybe ever, certainly that I can think of, probably in the modern era, spends a lot of time tending to the values issues of his base in a way that previous presidents might have been kept from because they worried they might step on some other toes outside of the base. He's shown no, not only is he, he's, in, I mean, he's not worried about that. And, and he, um, it's not just it's not he does things affirmatively to add to keep the the values issues front and center um, in a constant way. I don't know whether that this is in and by that I'm talking about the NFL um, uh, players or his response to Charlottesville. Um, some of it is strategic. Some of it is instinctive. 
I don't know which of this this is, um, but it's he likes he was going to keep a, a steady diet of that going on, um, and this may be a part of that as well. Don't you think also there's just the delight in refusing to sign something that everyone else went along with, right? This is like the Iran deal. Every six months, I have to re-up this agreement, and I don't want to do it. Like, I'm the disruptor. I'm not playing by the old rules. Although I he did like sign it. Once. Well, he signed it. Yeah, yeah, he signed it again. Right. It's In a lot of ways, this is phony because the embassy is not moving anytime soon. But you get a lot of attention for seeming yeah. to refuse to play by the rules. There's also a policy argument, which they say, and I don't um, – I don't – I haven't studied all the, the response to this, but it's hard to find anybody who supports it. But it's the idea that this will, like, somehow – disrupt the peace negotiating process and somehow knock everybody into a position where they that might is, make a deal. I just, what I can't stand about this is how deeply cynical it is. First of all, I don't believe that for one second. Yeah. It doesn't seem like anyone who has like deep knowledge of Israeli-Palestinian affairs agrees with that idea. And in fact, many people are making the obvious point that it was this was a bargaining chip the U.S. Yeah. had on the table. They could have gotten something like a settlement freeze in, in exchange for it. Instead, we got nothing. If you think that it's in our interest and we care about making a peace deal, which, which the president does yeah. say he cares about. The other thing that makes me really upset is the notion that if what happens as a result of this is more Muslim unrest and violence, then that's all good for President Trump, who uses fake videos of Muslim Muslim violence when he doesn't have real ones. Like, why not poke, you know, create some, gin some up? That makes me really upset. And then also there's the reaction of the Arab world here. So the Arab world is is in opposition to this, is speaking out against it. But there's also the suggestion that Saudi Arabia, which seems to be the country in this region that, you know, Trump and Jared Kushner are like particularly close to, that they are finding it useful. They can kind of pretend to align against the U.S. and with the Palestinians and against Israel at a moment when really what they're doing is cozying up to the United States in all these different ways. And this sort of allows them to claim this... Um, political credibility in in the Arab world that they don't really deserve. That also just seemed like deeply cynical. I would, I guess I I have much less, I'm much less exercised about this, I think, than you are, Emily. One, because the fact is Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and Jerusalem is going to remain the capital of Israel. And so like just from a purely like practical operational and 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 uh realistic standpoint it's the capital of israel that's where the state seat of government is it's going to stay there that's what israel wants like to we can pretend it's not the case but it, it the fact is that's where it is so so acknowledging it and actually moving our embassy there is merely to say this is the reality of the situation and i don't think anyone has a legitimate claim i think there's a legitimate i think that bargaining chip argument is a good one but i don't think there's a legitimate argument that 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 we should believe Jerusalem shouldn't be the capital of Israel. Israel has a right to make it its capital. It is a historically but, the center of the country. And, you know, that's a that's a nation's right. To but make can it. we apply a version of what you were making in the previous in the argument about same sex marriage, which is why force this issue now? We are trying to get things back on track towards some kind of peace deal. And this uh, rubs the Palestinians uh, face in a position. Well, that OK, then we get to that issue, which is that, first of all, there's no uh, peace process. There will not be a peace process as long as Bibi Netanyahu is the 
uh, leader of Israel and uh, conservative Republicans control the White House. There's no peace process that that and where there is a Palestinian government, which is led by a very old a part of it's, you know, the West Bank part is led by a very old and not particularly effective at this point leader. And Gaza is led by a group that we Hamas. recognize as a terrorist, <laughs> terrorist organization. As a terrorist organization. Right. And so the, the idea that there's like a, a lot of appetite or re- possibility of a of peace process through normal right. channels is ludicrous. It's not going to happen with this administration. And th- what I think they've chosen is to say, OK, let's try let's try, a, you know, a, an end run. Let's try something different. I don't think it will work. But I also don't think. I don't think the Arab, most of the Arab world gives a rat's ass about this. I, I don't think hmm. that actually the, the, the Saudis or, or uh, the Egyptians are like, oh, my God, you know, well, the they, U.S. has recognized that, of course, there, there's rhetoric about it. But, you right. know, really, you know, Syria is Syria is not focused on where Israel's capital is. Syria is focused on the fact that it has a hellish civil war. Iran and Saudi Arabia are basically focused on a huge global conflict or a huge regional conflict that they're that they're winding themselves up about it isn't Arab. The Arab world in general is not that invested in the state, the fate of the Palestinians right now. So it's just not, I don't think it is that big a deal for most of the Arab world. I don't think there, you know, it's, there's going to be days of rage across, uh, you know, Algeria and Egypt that, that really mean anything. I mean, maybe it'll, you know, get people out on the street for a bit, but people don't care that much. But isn't this so, so two things? One is in response to your argument that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, true. But why not also recognize that East Jerusalem could and should be the capital of a Palestinian state? The Palestinians should also have a right to make that happen. And if Trump wanted to make this announcement, there was no reason not to at least extend that recognition and olive branch in that moment. And without doing that, and by giving this bargaining chip away for free, we have strengthened the hand of the right wing in Israel, of Bibi Netanyahu, of everyone who wants to foment division and use the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to incite rage and prevent, you know, peace and progress in the Middle East. And we are barreling toward a reality of an undemocratic one-state Israel in which, like, that is when this sort of idea of apartheid becomes actually a real thing. And there already are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who essentially don't have a right to vote for representation based on millions, right? Sorry, I was thinking of, like, the East Jerusalem population. But yes, you can extend that to millions in the West Bank. And Instead of trying to prevent that eventuality and strengthen the remaining forces that would try to go in the other direction for no strategic gain, except this like made up stuff we talked about, we have just moved in the other direction. And that seems like morally and humanely just appalling to me. You know, it's not I agree strategically it's not a great idea and the timing is not great and for all the reasons that you cite I just don't I think in the level of things that are going on in the Middle East that are causing making things worse this is a really small one compare it to settlement building compare it to you know the 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 effect of barring of Palestinians from the Israeli economy um Compared to, you know, the the appropriation of Palestinian land and like the refusal to recognize Palestinian land rights, the blockades that make freedom of movement difficult. Like those to me seem like that's the day to day way in which 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 Israel is is committing major, major crimes against Palestinians. The capital thing is just like seems small. And in fact, that in fact, Israel is I mean, Jerusalem is the capital. And so what that 
Like it seems, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem even remotely in the same league as all this other stuff that's happening. And also, you could do it and then be tougher on sanctions, or I mean, sorry, well, on we're settlements. We're not going or, to do that. No, like, I know. We were addressing all of the greater ills and evils that you just listed, and using our position as the supposedly neutral arbiter, the kind of you know moral force bringing people together to do anything about the things you just named. Then that would be a different situation. But we're not. This is our government's action in the Middle East. It is to use a symbol to send an incredibly one-sided message to empower people who want to essentially just take over the West Bank and have no Palestinian state and have people who are like in permanent exile and never have any political power or representation, which is to the detriment of Israel in the end as much as anyone else. And like we are just that's what we're up to. That's our government's contribution. Yeah, it's it's sure. But I didn't see you, you know, being so worked up over the last, you know, six odd years when the you know bb Netanyahu is rolling the u.s over and over again on settlement building and on really i feel like i have been working but you know but, or rather I mean, the, 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 not you that, that was I... sorry that you it's the 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 pub <laughs> the as a matter of public discussion like all of a sudden this is front page you know news alerts huge bulletin and so that this this change has happened and this is a this is like a real policy change it's it's meaningful it's it does make something different, but it is again, as I say, it's like it does seem to me so much small beer compared to every other thing that is going on in that region. I think that's fine, except that symbols matter so much generally in the world, and especially in this part of the world. And so, yes, there is a way in which you know this that's is the thing that people importance. that's the thing that people always like say to diminish. I mean, it's like, oh, you know, these Palestinians are just obsessed with symbolism. These really, you know, what they're also like, you know, what also matters is like when your water rights are taken or your land are taken. People are really upset about that. Totally, right, but, but I also think when you have a moment that crystallizes a lot of attention and news coverage, maybe it's like the wrong moment. Maybe if you were thinking about Palestinians' daily lives, what would matter much more are water rights or land rights and property being taken away. A hundred, like I think that's all true, but I, I don't. But that still but, doesn't justify this yeah, action. Yeah, because if you're me. saying that the reasons one through five are the ways in which the Palestinians are being abused, why does that? Why is that an argument for adding number six? Even if it's not the top five, why add number or six? Or for paying attention to number six, <clears throat> even if it's the wrong reason to pay attention. At least it's like making people focus. Yeah, no, it's, I'm I'm what abouting this? Yeah, a little bit. That's true. I am what abouting it. I just I I guess I'm I I as the more I thought about this, I just felt like. I'm not at all convinced that this is going to be this accelerant, this, you know, this this gasoline on dry tinder, match on dry oh. tinder that everyone talks it is, about it is. I just don't I just don't think it is nearly as important as the rhetoric around it suggests well, it is. I think well, it is fine. interesting. I just feel like, what do we want from our government? Do we want our government to play a productive role in protecting the rights of people who are being stripped of their rights in a way that is horrible for them and ultimately horrible for the state of Israel? Or do we want our government to be like messing around and kind of disrupting for for no apparent reason and with no real gain. Like, which role do we want our government to play? The State Department has some fear that this will cause a problem. But this is a test of um, something conservatives have been skeptical about for years, which is that other countries in the Middle East have used the peace issue as a kind of, um, you know, until that gets solved, well, you know, we can't take care of any of our problems. Now, 
So that's one other thing to watch in this in terms of gauging the reaction to it, whether there's really the Arab street, as it's been, you know, as it's called, is really going to be inflamed by this decision in the way some people who worry about doing anything for fear of inflaming the Arab street, um, you know, the way that they they predict. Yeah. And then what's the lesson from that? Like, it's okay to sell out the Palestinians. They I mean, let's go to cocktail chatter when you are having a uh, Moscow mule in Moscow or a white Russian in Russia. I don't know why. Those are the only two geographic, a cosmopolitan and a cosmopolitan city. Emily, what will you be chattering about? I was really interested in a piece that the upshot at the New York Times did this week. It's by Emily Badger and Kevin Queeley based on research. Are you troubled by the fact there's another Emily Ba at the New York no, Times? No, I think Emily Badger is great. Um, I'm going to call her Emily Badgerlon. (laughs) Please don't do that. Based on research by a Stanford professor named Sean Reardon, and it's about measuring the effectiveness of schools using a measure that looks at how much progress they make over time. So instead of just dinging schools in low-income districts for not having test scores that are as high as wealthier districts, it praises districts, including Chicago, for having made up a lot of the gap. So, yes, Chicago's scores are still lower than more socioeconomically wealthy districts, which is totally unsurprising. Those things always track. But Chicago and some other districts in the country are doing a really good job of helping their students catch up. And other districts in wealthier areas are not doing that. Their students are not overperforming. Some of them are underperforming. It's a great visual depiction, too. You can, like, scroll in, find your own school district. You can look at the changes from third grade to eighth grade test scores. There are 2,000 school districts in this data set. It's just a really interesting way of thinking about how effective schools are. John Dickerson. I uh, am chattering about sort of two things wrapped in one. One is a, a new book like by um, peanut butter cup? Timothy Ferris called Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World. I learned about it. Well, I knew about it and that it was out there. But I um, heard him interviewed on a podcast called The Art of Manliness, uh, which I quite like from the uh, few that I've listened to. Wait, a whole to. podcast called The Art of Manliness? The Art of Manliness. And one episode, another episode I heard about is uh, was about um, why men have a hard time making friends in adulthood. It's a sort That's of sociological That's such a great topic. At, yeah, it is. It's very interesting. Um, and so, anyway, I enjoyed the the podcast, but um, this, and this interview was um, quite good. And the thing from the interview that I took, I mean, you should listen to it, and, um, but it was this great device for getting honest opinions out of people who are trying to be too polite to give them. And the um, experience that was used, although I, uh, I would gather this would work in all kinds of instances where you want to get somebody's opinion is if you're in a restaurant and you ask the waiter, do you like the duck, duck l'orange? And the waiter always says, oh, it's great. And then you ask them, do you like the steak au poivre? And they say, oh, it's great. You know, do you like the scallops flaming in motor oil? Oh, it's great. You know, you can never get an honest answer. So the, what he suggests you do is say, would you rank the duck a l'orange um, on a scale of one to ten, but you can't use the number seven? That's way too complicated to no, ask it is a little, waiter. I know it is Can't you just say, like, if you were ordering, no, what no, would no, you No, 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 because no, they no. lie. This is a great system. Do yeah. it, say it again. Yeah, a so scale rank, of one to ten. 
But oh my god, this yeah. is like turning ordering into a project. Go but anyway, on. Uh, well, I mean, assuming you want an actual opinion from the person rather than what you're going to normally get, which is a pa- pablum. Anyway, in this case, rank it from one to ten, but you can't use the number seven. What the number seven does is it's a safe space for somebody to give an opinion that is neither too good or too bad. So you eliminate seven, and you know then if they give it an eight then you get it. And if they give it a six, they don't really like it. And it's a way to actually get precise information from somebody um, using a new device that I'm going to use in everything I do all day long. I think it's oh great. God. I think it's great. I, I think it's great. You're really... It's like endless. endless. Also, it's actually a great way day. to interrogate your own thinking, which is do how much do I want to do this on a scale of one to ten leaving out seven, what do I decide? You know what? I dispute the premise because I actually think that more and more in restaurants, you ask waiters for an opinion and they'll just tell you. They'll be like, that's too salty. I think you'd like this better. I don't know. Maybe I look so um, pathetic that well, I am l- able okay, to elicit take it. that That's fine. More that's often. fine. Take it out of the restaurant context, though. I mean, there are lots of instances in which this you book. want to get people to tell you whether it's really yeah. worth it. Yeah, yeah. Really exactly. It. And shake them out of, which is funny in a time of falling norms, if people didn't keep the yeah. norm of just trying to be polite about opinions. Yeah. Um, and yet they do so much so that we have to create this incredibly useful system. Yeah. And right. when they use six, it's like they don't realize that they're basically saying it's a one. Yeah. There's a, well, there's this, there's this fantastic uh, tool that we use at Atlas Obscura called the Net Promoter Score, which is you ask people, how likely are you to recommend this in our case, a trip or an event to a to a friend, and so the way it works is on a scale of one to ten, how likely are you to recommend it? If you say a nine or ten, that counts as a positive. If you say a seven or eight, that's a nothing, and six and below, it's a negative. Basically, so even if someone gives you a six, which is like, oh, it's a six, it's a positive, that counts like a zero. Yeah. And so you're you can tell how well you've done essentially by subtracting the zero to the one to sixes from the nines and tens and and there's Couldn't a ratio you just change the ranking systems to one through three and then say you can't no. say two no, no because people don't want to give the coup de gras yeah, people don't want to say one I yeah see. and yet that what they, they really mean one when they're saying six yeah. yeah um and it also has it's a lots of i mean you'll hear it in the interview on the podcast but there's lots of other interesting things in it even if you don't sign on to them that will kind of break the rust off of your own thinking about the way you do stuff. Okay. Um, one sca- 10, uh, so no on a seven. scale of so, uh, one to 10, Emily, without using seven, what do you think of John's tie? <laughs> no, I'm not. Ooh, that's, that, is, that is a <laughs> that's six, a six. <laughs> or, or a one. It's essentially a one. Okay. See, you told me to be really honest and I don't want to be. Proof of concept. <laughs> Proof of concept. <laughs> I normally love all of John's ties. (laughs) This is like like now now purple and blue striped tie, and yet it got that kind of a. See, this is exactly. I thought she was just going to be like, "Oh, it's a nine. I didn't. I didn't even have an opinion about the tie." To but you just told me to be honest and like scolded us for all giving false opinions. All right, Uh, I don't really want to follow that. (laughs) That was great. I'm not going to follow that. I'll follow that chatter briefly. I want to chatter. If you had a tie on, I would give it a one and a half. (laughs) If I had a tie on, I'd made a bad life choice somewhere. (laughs) John's made excellent life choices. I know, but that's John and I are, you know, roll differently. What do you mean? No, I don't know. Okay. Um, So uh, just (laughs) my chatter is uh, just to refer you to a wonderful, hilarious story on Vice UK that I saw. Uh, was referred to me by long form. It 
is headlined, I Made My Shed the Top-Rated Restaurant in London on TripAdvisor. Shed by, is such a great word is, well, in that a, headline. It's a British word. It's by someone with the wonderful name Uba Butler. I love that name, Uba Butler. And what Uba Butler did was just to try to see what happened if you tried to game TripAdvisor. And so he he had a backyard garage, a shed, and he just started posting sort of staged fake pictures. He he uh, you know made a write up which made this kind of appointment only restaurant sound mysterious, and then had his friends write some fake reviews. And over time, um, this restaurant rose up in London's ranking from eighteen thousand seven hundred ninety three, the bottom of the entire TripAdvisor list, all the way to the number one. And then when right, people and it never coming, existed. What and happened? Well, people start. Well, so he couldn't. He didn't put the address in. That was part of the, the secret. It's like, oh, we you know, it's it's an appointment Super only. Exclusive. But he would start get. But he did put in a phone number, and so he began getting phone calls from all over the world. People desperate to come to the restaurant. Oh my God. Um, people heard about it, you know, publicists trying to promote it and celebrities wanting to come. And then ultimately he just decided to over, you know, like to serve dinner there. And sir, he basically served um, TV dinners to people, but like dressed and it up. And they still and gave it And people loved ones? it. And people, oh, my God. That's <laughs> the fantastic. The whole story is fantastic. It is, it is, a, it is a piece of brilliant performance art. I, I uh, strongly commend it. Before we go to our credits, I want to say a few words about another Slate podcast that you might want to give a listen to. Some years ago, I, David Plotz, uh, had the idea of interviewing people about how they do their jobs. It was a podcast we called Working, and I spent a great season doing it. I had a blast interviewing people about their work and how they did it and their processes. And I am delighted that Slate has carried on that podcast. And host Jacob Brogan has done a great job of finding interesting people to interview in interesting ways about their Work. He recently talked to a schooner captain, a community internet organizer, a hair entrepreneur. You can listen to Working every Sunday afternoon at slate.com slash working. That's our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by the inexorable, the impressive, the endlessly inimitable Jocelyn Frank. Is he that inimitable? Not unimitatable. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Inimitable. Inimitable. You're right. She would be imitable if somebody. Have you seen Jocelyn's sister? She has like Jocelyn like hair. But she might not have Jocelyn like talent. She might have different. She definitely doesn't have Jocelyn like talent. Though Jocelyn like hair is itself very impressive. Uh, Our researcher is Izzy Road, also inimitable. Also excellent hair. Also excellent. Less of it though. It's imitable hair. But everyone has less hair than Jocelyn. Yes. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. It's good. It's a fun feed. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, it's so lovely to be in a room with you guys. It's so much fun to tape in a room with you. I'm David Plotz. We will be back with you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.